don't change our behaviour, by the year 2050, there's going to be more plastic in the ocean than fish. So do we want a system of anarchy? And that's what we probably have at the moment. And they estimate that there's about 40.3 million people in some form of modern slavery. There is no single industry not touched by this issue. Definitely racists have been very good at using the internet. There's been a shift in thinking about who counts as a terrorist and there are currently terrorist laws being used against white nationalists. Where people's lives are being destroyed, that to me is enough to say something needs to be done here. Hello, I'm Susan Carland and welcome to What Happens Next, where we take a closer look at some of the really challenging issues facing the world. This is our final episode on right-wing extremism and the final episode for this series for What Happens Next. I know, devastating. Today, we'll talk to a behaviour change expert about what to do when you see extremism in action. Do we call it out? Do we starve it of oxygen? Something else? Nick Faulkner from Behaviour Works at the Monash Sustainable Development Institute talks us through some strategies. I'm a research fellow at BehaviourWorks, which is a behaviour change institute uh, at the Monash Sustainable Development Institute. So I work in a a bunch of different areas, um, but I'm most passionate about reducing racism and reducing prejudice. Dr Nick Faulkner, welcome. Thanks. I want to start by asking you about cyber hate. Exactly what is it? Yeah, so I mean, so I've done a bit of research on cyber racism and essentially it's just racism or hate speech um, on, in an online environment. In terms of content, it's no different to what you'd find offline? Well, for the most part, it's pretty similar. Um, there, are, Some of the racist groups are a bit strategic about how, what, how they present themselves online, um, just to avoid censorship and being banned and that sort of thing. But for the most part, it's similar. Do you think the online environment has helped facilitate the flourishing Extremism? Definitely racists have been very good at using the internet. I mean, even going back to the early 90s, there's been racist forums online that have been quite popular. Um, One of the longest running ones is Stormfront. Um, So that's been around since I think 92. And there's hundreds of thousands of members across the world. So, I mean, it's definitely helped spread that racist ideology. um, And it's also helped racists find networks and people who share similar views to themselves. So in that sense, it has. Right. All right. Practicalities. Yeah. Pretty much I think anyone who's used the internet ever has either witnessed or experienced probably some form of Mm. cyber racism. Yeah. And there's all these different ideas about what we should do. Ignore them, don't feed the trolls, sort of quote, unquote, uh, or argue back, clap back, call out, public shaming, retweet. What actually does the evidence say yeah, is the so way to deal with this? I have Initially, I have to, say, to give you some bad news. I don't have all the answers here. However, the research... I'll just call this podcast off. <laughs> the research is still emerging. Um, so we're, we're still trying to figure out how to reduce racism offline. Right, that's alone, what I was going to say. Let alone in online environments. So there's a little bit in the offline world. Um, but about 10 years ago, there was a review done which found that there was actually very... There was basically no... Um, uh, rigorous experiments that had been done to test what worked in an offline context. That's changed a bit in the last right. 10 years, but that just gives you a bit of a sense as to where things are at online. Mm. Um, about two years ago, my colleagues and I did a review of all the research on cyber racism. So we did these huge searches. We tr- searched through thousands of different um, records just to try and see where we're at, what, what's actually known about cyber racism. 
And most of the, the research has been looking at kind of what it is, how the racists are using it, are using the internet, what sorts of materials they're producing, um, you know, that sort of thing, rather than saying, okay, well, how do we stop it? Right. And also what impacts is it having on the victims of the racism right. as well? There's not a lot of research really? on that. Yeah. So I don't have all the answers. Um, yeah. there, I have heard a couple of common um, sort of suggestions about yes. how to reduce it. Okay. So one of them's like like you were saying, call it out. Okay. Another, another one is um, for companies to ban the racists and ban the racist groups. Yeah. yeah. But actually the evidence that's emerging is sort of questioning both of those strategies. So say someone sends me a horrible tweet. Yeah. I retweet it to my followers and go, look at this bigot, everyone. How dare you? Yeah. That I'm kind in, of thing? So I'm, I'm talking more lower level, I guess, so not as offensive. So like if I, for, for example, saw my auntie or uncle post something that was mildly racist, mm-hmm. um, you know, so there's been suggestions that I should... Right. Say, oh, hey, don't do that. You're being racist. Right, because otherwise we're bystanders. Yeah, yeah. Um, however, you've got to be really careful about this because if I jump in and say, hey, auntie, whoever, you're being a racist, um, that might start an argument. And there's a lot of research in psychology showing that when you start getting in an argument, people tend to to think about arguments that support their own preconceived ideas. Mm-hmm. So you might actually end up being strengthening that that racist view by kind of starting a fight with them. I also wondered, just to jump in there, I always wondered about doing that as well because often what happens is that person gets embarrassed or humiliated and surely from a psychological point of view, when you're humiliated or embarrassed, you're actually going to retreat into yourself and double down as opposed to saying, well, tell me more about these new ideas. Is, Is that true or is that just an assumption? There is some evidence suggesting that. Um, and definitely I would suggest that if you are challenging um, someone who's expressing sort of those lower levels of racism, not the really aggressive ones that you were mentioning before, um, I would recommend trying to give them an opportunity to sort of take back what they said without feeling too bad about saying it. So, for example, you know, you might say something like, oh, I know you, I don't think you meant it this way, but that could be offensive what you said or it might hurt these people. Um there's also quite a bit of research showing that if you can get people to empathize, so mm. understand what it's like to be somebody else or to cognitively sort of imagine what it might be like to be someone else, that uh, reduces prejudice and increases pro-social behavior, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. So um, so you might also do stuff like like suggesting, okay, imagine what it would be like if you, know, if you heard you these things all the time. The or, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. I've often wondered about with the internet is I hope that perhaps it could actually help, foolishly, reduce discrimination or prejudice or bigotry because there's this old theory in psychology, I think it's from, you know, the 50s, 1954 or yep. something, called the contact theory, yep. where if you just get to know someone uh, of, a, of a different background to you that perhaps you're prejudiced towards, uh, that can really help because suddenly you go, ah, oh, mm-hmm. All those Muslim terrorists, they're crazy. But this Muhammad guy that I've met who is my colleague at work, mm-hmm. we actually, he's a nice guy and totally. this changes things. How does contact theory work at all 
in an online setting, do we actually not feel like we've really met the person? Yeah, so I mean, so I actually did some research on this a couple of years ago, um, and the question was exactly that: like, can contact work in an online environment? Because um, we know that that is one of the most effective um, techniques offline. Um, so what we did was we got uh, a bunch of high school kids. Some of them were from a um, from Islamic high schools. Others were from Christian high schools, and we organized a, a project essentially where they worked together online. So they were chatting. They never met face to face, but they just chatted on over this online platform. And what then we measured their levels of prejudice and racism mm-hmm. you know, a couple of weeks later, three months later, um, and even a year later. And what we found was that even a year later, there was still significant reductions in prejudice. So just this, it was a six week program where they were chatting online. It reduced their prejudice. Even, so, for, even a year later, it was still there. Okay. So to clarify though, did there have to be sort of an interaction? So me yeah. just being on Twitter as a Muslim woman, merrily tweeting out news articles and what I had for breakfast and whatever, in and of itself might not change anyone's opinion because mm-hmm. we're not actually engaging. I'm not talking. They tweet me, I tweet back. There's no backwards and forwards. Is that the... Yeah, so uh, with the contact theory that you mentioned, so there are a few sort of criteria which you need to make it effective. And among them are essentially that you should be working towards a shared goal. You should have equal status. Mm-hmm. You should have some sort of authority supporting you. Um, well, so you like with that? that, so like, for example, in the teaching, uh, the school environment, the teacher would be saying, look, you should be talking to people. So okay. it's not like you've got a leader saying, oh, you shouldn't talk to, mm-hmm. to Muslims or you shouldn't talk to Christians. Um, so uh, we need ScoMo to come out on Twitter and say it would help. Everyone. It, 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 it would <laughs> chat help. like friends. It would, yeah, it would help if you had some sort of authority saying, "Look, you sh- we should there. There should be more yeah. interactions between people of different races." Uh-huh. So, um, so yeah. So we, in in the experiment that I mentioned before, we did try and um, have all of these uh, conditions met. In a, a Twitter environment, a lot of those aren't going to be met. You're not working towards a common cause. In fact, a lot of the time you're trying to fight against each other on Twitter, right? <laughs> right. So d- what about the technique? Another technique that people often recommend is ignore. Don't feed the trolls. Someone yeah. says something abusive to you or you just see someone say something abusive to someone else. Ignore, ignore, ignore. Yeah. Um, this is an interesting one. I don't think ignoring in itself is the best thing. I mean, at a minimum, I think you could be reporting it. So if you hit the report button and, and yeah. report it to Twitter or Facebook or TikTok, whatever, mm. um, you, whatever platform you're on, um, just because then that, that gives them data to help uh, help with with their efforts to address this um, this issue. So there's there's a new paper that came out a couple of months ago uh, in Nature, which was actually looking at what uh, these media platforms could do to reduce racism on their platforms. Um, and I, one of the, I'm sort of taking this off, off on a slightly different path to where this question started, but, um, one of, one of the, um, the things that they were looking at is how should these platforms go about banning, um, users and, and racist groups? Right. And what do the, what do the racist groups do in response when they are banned? And what they found was that racist groups are really good at reforming. Mm. So if you ban them on one platform, they'll just move to another. Chop one off, another one pops up. Exactly, exactly. Um, And so they tested a few, they they developed this 
computational model and they tested a few different strategies and was a, were able to measure in sort of this hypothetical computer model um, what happened to the numbers of racists um, in this model. And what they found is that if, if you, rather than targeting the, the big groups, so rather than ban- banning the, the big racist groups, if you instead target all the smaller ones, mm-hmm. it stops the bigger ones from emerging in the first place. So the smaller ones are like feeder groups exactly. for the big ones. Yeah, exactly. So this this paper is suggesting you should target these smaller ones, just leave the the big ones. But by targeting the small ones, you, you're, you're basically preventing the bigger ones from getting bigger. Uh-huh. Um, so, and another strategy they, they looked at was uh, whether you should go about banning all racist users or just a subsection of them. And what they found was that if you randomly ban 10% of racist users, that actually reduces racism on the platform by about 50% later on or up to 50% later on. Why is that? Because it stops them kind of interacting together. It just sort of prevents, um, prevents all these hubs from forming. So it, it's a bit counterintuitive, but by reporting those uh, racists online, you're giving this data to the plat- these media platforms that, you know, this could be a racist user, mm-hmm. which ideally they could use in a smart way mm. to, uh, produ- to uh, stop racists online. message on Instagram. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill your husband, all of that stuff. I reported it to Instagram and they wrote back and said, this person does not violate our community standards, which is, I'm sure it's just, you know, it's a machine doing it. It's not Mm. a, there's no human. They couldn't possibly have a human to handle all the complaints. What, and in that situation, you have no recourse. You've reported it. They've said, no, that's the end. What should they be doing yeah, that's... In, is it reasonable to even expect them to be able to do more when you've got millions, possibly billions of users? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, and one that I don't think the research has addressed very thoroughly. I mean, this paper that I mentioned a couple, that came out a couple of months ago is one of the first papers that is investigating what these platforms should do. So, I mean, I, I think it's obviously a difficult job for the platforms to get across all of the, the uh, huge volumes I don't know what the answer is, mm. um, but this research is suggesting that it would be good if they were able to identify who all the racists were and then used a, a, were strategic about who they banned and why, mm. which the, the sort of challenging sort of uh, issue there is that it still means that there's going to be some people like the one who sent you that horrible message who probably get to stay on the platform for a little yeah. bit longer, but um, hopefully the mm. strategies will prevent it in the longer run. Let me ask you a bigger philosophical question. Is it problematic to ban users in the first place? Are these the kind of things where you ban it, it just goes underground, 
their comments or beliefs can't be addressed. So it just sort of simmers and festers below the surface. We know, for example, uh, just this week, Germany, a, a town in Germany has declared a Nazi emergency, like mm. a climate emergency. They said we, right-wing extremism is so bad in our town, Dresden, we, we're declaring a Nazi emergency. So if these people don't have an opportunity to say what they think and then people have an opportunity to respond or refute that, could it actually make things worse? My inclination is to say that, look, I think we need to be strategic about who we're banning um, because if, if you do just, if you do allow them to just say what they want, congregate how they want online, then you're going to get much more ne closer networks of these people. Um, and what, what we've found, so we, we, did, we've, we did a study a couple of years ago um, with some computer scientists here where we were looking at the networks on on this, in this case, it was Stormfront, mm -hmm. so that racist website I mentioned. And when those networks became stronger, they became stronger before some really problematic real-world events. So I think we need to sort of be strategic to break these networks of, that have uh, networks of racists. Mm. Right-wing extremism or right-wing extremists are obviously not the only kind of extremists online. I've done uh, research on Islamic State and the way they used online platforms to recruit and spread their message. Is the way that your research suggests we should be dealing with right-wing extremists different or the same to how we should be dealing with other sorts of extremism? Yeah, it's it, that's a good question. I mean, admittedly, I haven't done as much work on the um, Islam, like the, mm. uh, those extremists that you mentioned. Um However, there was a, a, a paper a couple of years ago looking at how you break the networks of, um, of groups like ISIS um, and similar and groups with similar ideologies. And it did suggest that same sort of approach where you target the smaller ones, leave the bigger ones be. So there's probably some similarities there. Let's finish on a positive note. Give us the practical takeaway tips that any person can use when they're online. Let's start with the case of you see something being said to somebody else. So it's not being directed towards you or you see someone make an, you know, an unpleasant racist post. Yeah. What do we do? Is it a, how, how, how aggressive is this racist post? Mm, good question. Uh, okay. I will let me, I will be the person. And the post says something like, I'm sick of all these refugees coming into this country, stealing our job and trying to implement Sharia. Yeah. Full yeah. stop. Yeah. So, I mean, I would recommend probably in that, in general, reporting it, rep okay. reporting the racist posts that you, that you see, just so then that the data is being collected. That is, that can, that can then be acted upon later on. Um, if it's somebody who you know, try and give them an opportunity to correct what they've said. And do we That's do that publicly or should I send them a private message? Well, probably privately yeah. would be would be would be better just because you don't want people getting or feeling that that shame, that public shame which they would then probably be motivated to defend. So, um, people are very good at coming up with we call them moral disengagement strategies in psychology where basically as soon as they've done something wrong They'll reframe mm. the issue, reframe their behaviour to make it seem okay. Mm. Um, and so we see that actually in in uh, 
in, I did a study on responses to the Adam Goods incident a few years ago online, yep. and you could see them use about 90% of the posts that supported the, um, the, the booing of Adam, Adam Goods also used one or more of these moral disengagement strategies. Right. Adam Goods, of course, being the Indigenous player, highly celebrated Australian of the Year, who was uh, the victim of a pretty sustained booing campaign. Exactly, yeah. And also some uh, racist slurs from from the audience. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, so sorry. I just went down a a bit of a tangent. So I privately messaged them. I would would privately message them and say something like, hey, I know you probably didn't mean this, um, but imagine what it would be like if you were in this, this situation. Um, I pro- so empathy. Yes. So try and avoid getting into an argument. Try and get them to to empathise and imagine what it would be like to be that person. It's hard to do that, but those are probably the two key tips that are that are based in the research at the moment. Okay. And now, what about if the situation where I write a post? What a happy sunny day! I love eating cereal, and someone immediately writes back, "Why don't you f off out of this country?" Just report them. Just report. Uh, I, Is I there any s- point trying to engage? Well, when when they are so radicalised that they're not likely to change their opinion, it's probably less beneficial. There's probably not a lot of good that can come from engaging with mm-hmm. them. So report and ignore. That would be my approach. What yeah. do you think about the block button? Yeah, well, I mean... If- we, like I said before, there's not a lot of research looking at um, what the impact of this online racism is on the the victims of the online of, of online racism. But what we have seen is that the simple thing that you would expect that when people do see more um, uh, racism directed towards them online, they tend to have lower levels of well-being. Right, sort of the death so, of a thousand cuts. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the the more of those sort of messages that you're exposed to, the lower your well-being is probably going to be. So, yeah, block them. Don't expose yourself to those messages if you can avoid it. Um, Obviously, you can't avoid it all the time, but (laughs) where you can, stop it from happening. Right. Is there anything else we can do? I had this idea. I did it a couple of years ago. I was getting so much abuse on Twitter Mm. and I tried everything, ignoring, blocking, muting, trying to engage, trying to be friendly. None of it seemed to work. So I decided that I would instead, for every hate message I got on Twitter, I would donate $1 to UNICEF to try to... Yeah. clarify or create, restore the cosmic equilibrium, I suppose, for every horrible thing that came my way. I would try to do something positive, didn't involve engaging them in any way. I sent thousands to UNICEF. <laughs> well, I mean, look, there's, there's plenty of research showing that people's well-being tends to go up when they volunteer or do something nice for others. So, right. I mean, if if your well-being's being harmed by being exposed to these sort of racist messages then, yeah, doing something positive like that could be a nice way to, mm-hmm. to sort of neutralise that, um, that, that negative impact. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we've got, a few, we've got a few suggestions now. It sounds like, though, it's, it's a really messy environment in which the research is just running to try to catch up. But like you exactly. said, when we haven't solved it offline, why on earth do we think we'd be able to solve it online? Yeah, exactly. So we're 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 still really struggling offline. I've uh, at the moment I've got uh, two two PhD students working on this, plus a, another project where we're one's looking at Islamophobia online, another's looking at um, LGBTI inclusion in sport, and then another's looking at uh, immigrant prejudice, all in offline contexts. Yeah. Um, 
And yeah, then there's still so much to be done online as well. So, so they need to work faster. Everyone needs to work faster, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm, telling them, I'm telling my students that all the time. <laughs> Nick, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Some great ideas there from our expert, Nick Faulkner. Special thanks to Nick for coming on the show. And that is the last of our episodes on right-wing extremism and the very last episode for this series of What Happens Next. We really hope you've enjoyed the podcast so far. We'll be back soon with a new series of sliding door moments discussing the big challenges of the world around us, what the future could look like and how we can all help to change it. So if you have some topics you'd like us to discuss, shoot us an email, podcast at monash.edu. This podcast was produced by Monash University. It could not have been possible without the support of Fabian Maroney, Belinda Hayes, the Monash University Law Faculty and all our experts, including academics, students and alumni. Production and editing by the wonderful Sunny Lunig, editorial research and direction by the amazing Joe Crompton and our executive producer is the wondrous Angela Patrick. Thank you.